this second presentation, I shall reiterate some key points from the first presentation. Look at the uh, social and domestic context of Mark's Gospel and then offer an introduction to uh, as an overview of the whole Gospel in terms of its structure, a very brief overview, building on the earlier plan mentioned in the first presentation, but also focus on the first verse of the Gospel and the last verse of the Gospel to illustrate how these two verses, which on a superficial reading seem to be contradictory, in fact contain within them the seeds of understanding the whole of Mark's Gospel. reiterating from our previous session, our previous introduction. In that presentation, we talked about the way of hearing Mark, namely through remembering the world in which Mark's gospel was written, the world behind the gospel. But also, of course, what we'll be looking at is the world of the gospel itself, the narrative world in order that we ourselves might engage the story of the gospel. We represent the world in front of the gospel, the world in front of the text. So hearing Mark, again reminding me and others that the original audience did not read, they listened to somebody who could read the gospel proclamation as an interpreter. So in hearing Mark's gospel, we bear these three worlds in mind and engage them with one another. And the other thing that I spoke of in, in the first presentation was that we hear the gospel of Mark backwards. The story of Jesus' death and resurrection becomes the, the, the speaker, as it were, the, the sound speaker through which we hear the earlier part, the first 13 chapters of Mark's Gospel, so that Jerusalem becomes the end point of the Gospel. It leads up to and away from Jerusalem. The Gospel story leads up to Jerusalem and it leads the narrative away from Jerusalem. And the other point that I made was was uh, but didn't e expand on it was that Mark's gospel was the basis for the other two gospels that of Luke and Matthew so the first uh, so the 16 chapters of Mark are, are used by Luke but with significant absences and Luke the gospel writer writing a generation later absorbs Mark's gospel into the narrative though adds other uh, chapters that would be unique to, to Luke. Similarly, with Matthew, Matthew uses Mark's basic outline, but adds a birth story in the beginning, in the first two chapters, adds stories dealing with the events after Jesus' resurrection, 
and then Matthew inserts five blocks of teaching material in uh, chapters 5 to 7 of Matthew, in chapter 10 of Matthew, in chapter 13, chapter 18, and in chapter 24. So Matthew works from the basic outline of Mark, but adapts the Mark and narrative, again writing about a generation after Mark for a new audience. In fact, Matthew's writing to a Jew Jewish audience of Jesus' followers. And the other point that I made towards the end of the previous introduction was uh, considering Mark as writing for a household, uh, a small gathering of followers of Jesus somewhere in the Roman world uh, and possibly in Rome. Uh, the uh, scholar, Jeremy O'Connor, the Pauline scholar, the Dominican uh, preacher, teacher, teaching, uh, who taught in Jerusalem at the Ecole Biblique and died some years ago, he did a study on the size of houses of the ancient world or the first century world. And, he summer, and, and his idea was to try and work out if we're thinking of households, how many people would, be th would, would we be thinking of? So he took the average size of an atrium, uh, the outer courtyard, as 55 square meters. When he when he measured up or looked at a number of representative houses across the Mediterranean, the average size of the outer courtyard, the atrium, was 55 square meters. The average size of a dining room was around 36 square meters. And the dining room itself, called in in Latin the triclinium, because of three inclined couches uh, configured in a horseshoe shape uh, and each of these couches would have three people on them represented nine people so if you think of trying to put together the number of people both in the dining room and in the atrium we'd be looking at around 40 to 50 maybe 60 max 60 people, maybe 50 people in a house. And if you think of household to Jesus' followers, say in a city of Rome, perhaps clustered around the same area, maybe we're looking at two or three houses, perhaps around 150 people. I mean, all this is highly speculative, of course, but it does give us a sense we're dealing with a small group of people. And it does invite us to retune our ears to when we hear the narrative. When you think of a household, of course, we're thinking of an environment, an ecological environment, and maybe inviting us to think ecologically as we understand uh, the house as an ecological symbol of communion, reliant upon Earth's goods, and uh, what occurs in this house as it members gather to hear the story of Jesus has ramifications in, for the way they understand their own environment. And of course it invites us today as we deal with the ecological crisis to move beyond simply hearing the gospel uh, centered on human beings, centered on human salvation, anthropocentrically to a more ecologically oriented, environmentally oriented uh, understanding that the gospel was intended not only for human beings but for creation a point 
that the second or maybe the third author of Mark at the end of the gospel in chapter 16 adds where the disciples are, go out, are told to go out and preach the gospel to the whole of creation. So uh, what touches human beings in the gospel of Mark will have its impact on the whole of creation. So the final point I want to offer before we move uh, specifically into the text itself is the kind of social structure that we are dealing with. Uh, Mark's audience, while, while I'm, I'm suggesting is an urban audience, would have also been representative of the main um, uh, people of uh, Roman society, perhaps not from the higher echelon, although we will hear of people related to, to Herod, uh, and we'll hear of one of Herod's uh, servants called Cusa later. So there were representatives perhaps of, m maybe not of the highest level of elitism in Roman society, but, but, but certainly uh, people who were connected, let's say, with the higher echelon. And also dealing mainly with people of uh, urban contexts, merchants, artisans and day labourers, maybe bailiffs or tax farmers or bureaucrats. But certainly uh, in this urban context we get a sense that the people that Mark is addressing are uh, the mainstream uh, people of, of uh, the urban setting, perhaps some from the elite uh, background, and others from the artisan or the mainstream pockets of society. These would be represented when they come together, of course, in the household to share the Lord's Supper, where they uh, begin to understand the story of Jesus for their own local context. So with that concluding summary, then I would want to move in the next part to begin our study formally of, of Mark's Gospel. As we turn to Mark's Gospel, <clears throat> I'm conscious of thinking, thinking of the Gospel uh, geographically and the way that geography is used as a literary placement or a way of constructing the narrative of Mark. So, for example, if we think of the overture of the gospel, which I would see is in chapter 1, verse 1, I consider the, the first verse as both an overture and a summary of the gospel itself, which I shall come back to. Then... Um, the next moment in the story is Jesus in the wilderness, beginning with John the Baptist in the wilderness in chapter 1, verses 2 and following to verse 8, uh, who introduces Jesus. And we again, we shall look at this in greater depth later. Then the rest of the story of Jesus from chapter 1, verse 9 to chapter 13, verse 37 is Mark's story of Jesus, what occurs. And, and that will take up the main presentations, the main number of presentations of our podcast series. Then in chapter 14, verse 7 to chapter 16, verse 7, which covers, covers Jesus in Jerusalem, his passion, 
his suffering, his death and his resurrection, uh, that is the place of, uh, occurs in Jerusalem, but ends up in a tomb, in a place what could be named as the place of wilderness. And then finally, the gospel ends in chapter 16, verse 8. I, would be, I will be suggesting, contrary to what appears to be as the women run from the tomb and say nothing to anyone uh, because they're afraid, uh, I'm going to suggest that, in fact, this is Mark's way of saying that the good news does continue. So when you look at that structure in chapter 1, verse 1, and chapter 16, verse 8, in 1, verse 1, which is the overture, the, gospel, the good news begins... And then the proclamation at the end in chapter 16, verse 8, the good news continues. So as it were, this is the outer layer of Mark's gospel. It's the outer layer um, that frames the whole of the gospel. Then on the inner, the next inner layer is this theme of the wilderness in chapter 1, 2 to 8 and 14, 7 to 16, 7, those two chapters deals with Jesus in the wilderness or a wilderness, a place of aloneness. And those that frame then frames the whole of the rest of the gospel. So if you think of, of the framing technique, a, a technique that I'll come back to several times in the course of our study of Mark, that technique Mark uses frequently to emphasize the, the inner core of a, of a narrative or a story but the outer core the outer frame helps to understand what's going on the on in on inside the inner frame and the central question that emerges right in the heart of that inner core is in chapter 8 who do people say that I am and who do you say I am and the Peter's response is he's the Christos, he's the Messiah, the Anointed One. So he's right in his response. However, once he learns that Jesus is going to suffer, then he resists it. So he resists this suffering Jesus, this suffering Messiah. So Peter's response is both partly correct and partly incorrect. And discipleship then, in, the, in what occurs subsequently, entails following a Jesus who suffers. And so the critical question that Mark is raising is how can suffering be a part of authentic discipleship? So uh, this overview then helps us to frame where we move and how we begin to understand both the opening verse, one, verse 1, and the closing verse, the, the original closing verse of the gospel in chapter 16, verse 8. And it's to that chapter 1, verse 1, and to 16, verse 8, that I'm now going to turn to. second presentation, what I've sought to do is pick up some key points that uh, I mentioned in the first uh, presentation but have expanded upon them. I've offered 
a very general overview of a way of understanding Mark's Gospel in terms of Mark's framing technique, the way that Mark frames the Gospel with the first and the last verse, the last verse being the original verse of the Gospel, then an inner frame dealing with wilderness. And these two frames, as it were, overlay the whole of the rest of Mark's Gospel. And then we've looked very carefully at the way we can understand the very first chapter verse 1 as an overture of the gospel itself and then verse uh, 8 of chapter 16 how it actually contains within it the very seeds that Mark mentions in chapter 1 verse 1 uh, in the women's reaction and how the gospel while it may appear to be silenced in fact it will bear fruit as the gospel the gospel the written gospel is the beginning and it continues now in the life of the listener. It continues now in us. Mm -hmm.